Our gospel reading today comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and on the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For, this, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all is spoken well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I know we've been going through the last few weeks and talking about this living the impossible. We're on week three We're on third base, we're headed towards home, it won't be too much longer until we're at Transfiguration Sunday and then Ash Wednesday and Lent begins, but right now we still have a couple more weeks. And if you remember, we've been going through these passages in Luke, and what's interesting is this passage and the one that we will talk about next week often don't get discussed in this Epiphany season because we have a really late Lent and a really late Easter this year. So these couple are here together. And this is one we don't usually get a chance to uh, reflect on. This is called the Sermon on the Plain, which if you hear it, it sounds similar to the Sermon on the Mount that you know from other places in the Gospels. So, but before going any further, though, is that I wanted to acknowledge all of the difficulties that I have gotten wind of here in the congregation of late. I was, Denise and I were going on a visit, oh, she's not, um, and Denise was over there. Um, and I, I said to her after receiving another call where I feel like no one can get a break lately. Um, it seems like we're all struggling with something, whether it's medical issues or deaths in the family or emotional trauma that goes along with any of those things. And of course, that doesn't include things like new transitions in life. I know my family right now is still trying to figure out what does it mean for both of us to be working full-time. The kids respond to that in not always the ways that I wish they would, but that's part of life. Um, Some of us have new diagnoses that we're just trying to figure out, and on and on and on it goes. And, of course, these are just the things that I am aware of, the things that come through the office, folks giving me a call, letting me know, things that perhaps in your hearts you're okay with letting other folks know. But, of course, there are things buried in our hearts that we all struggle with from time to time. Those things we're not comfortable sharing with one another. All these things put together are the all-too-familiar feelings of the decay of the world, of ourselves, and of creation. 
seems all we see around us is things heading towards chaos and perhaps not the way that they should be. And I think here's a place where very often, if we're talking about living the impossible, this is one of the places where people tend to get off of the theological exits and head towards the door. The impossible life really does, it turn out, feel impossible. With all these terrible things going on, maybe you look around at the world, you look around what's going on in your personal life, it's not just one thing, but two things, but five things, but ten things, all at the same time, and you wonder, what is this all about anyway? doesn't seem worth it anymore. Maybe we give up on church. And please, when I say these things, no, it's not with judgment. It's just, I understand. Some people will say, you know what, this has been great, but I, I don't know. Maybe we don't give up on church per se, but maybe we give up on the, the stuff on here. Maybe we really like the potlucks because they're really good here, of course. And so we'll go on potluck Sundays. We'll go on the Sundays that we feel like we have to because we have an obligation. But the rest of it it is kind of mentally optional, right? We can sort of sing or we can sort of think about other things while we're doing the worship. But so long as we can do a couple things, it's okay. Or maybe we look away from the pain and the decay of the world. Or when we're in the midst of it and we can't look away, we retreat to what we know and what's all too familiar and we hope for the best. Remember last week we were talking about the nets and Jesus asking the disciples, the soon-to-be disciples, to cast the nets. Cast the nets. That's funny. Uh, we have our serviceable nets and we're not looking for anything more so long as we have something that we can hold on to. But I often wonder, is there something more than that? More than thoughts and prayers? I thought this was great. More than, well, God's got a plan for you. More than, well, at least they're not in pain anymore. More than, oh, well, there's one more angel in heaven now, isn't there? Or any other platitude that we might not really want, but we feel obligated to share when we get too close to the decay and the destruction of the world. Is there something more in this world than just heading out of it and saying, I'm not interested? I think there is. But in discovering it, I think as we've been talking these last couple weeks about the impossible, we have to live on the most outrageous claim of them all. Now, Paul can sometimes get wordy. I know that. There's a lot of if-then statements. You're kind of like, I'm not in logic class anymore. Like, I got over that. I did what I needed to do. But here, I think Paul starts to unravel what is the most incredible and outrageous thing that we have as part of our faith. Paul is inviting us to consider that beyond anything else, anything else that we believe or that we understand, the most fundamental belief is we need to hold is that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. That, for us as Christians, according to Paul here in Corinthians, is the linchpin. Everything else begins to fall apart if we don't believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And honestly, it is, and I just want to be honest for a second, like that is a really difficult thing to rationalize and believe in, right? If I said to you that, you know, I knew somebody who died, was buried for three days, and then came back from the dead, are you going to believe me? 
don't think so. It's, it's something that is, and so maybe we should be honest right from the outset that the thing that we're being asked to do might be the most difficult thing that this Christian life asks of us, is to believe that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And notice that it isn't about all the other things we gripe about with faith and whether we should believe it or not. Do you believe that it's a seven-day creation? Paul says nothing about that. Do you believe that Moses actually parted the Red Sea? It's not part of this discussion. What matters to Paul is that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. And Paul argues that without that, in this passage in Corinthians, that we should be pitied. If you don't believe in this, then what's the point in the first place? It's like believing in something that you know isn't going to be true at the end. What's the point? He also argues that this faith has been in vain a few passages back. If Jesus Christ had not been raised and our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain, this would have been a waste of time for you, Paul is saying. And I think that that happens a lot in this walk, doesn't it? When we witness the decay of the world and all we see is death and death and death, and no new life springing forth. We wonder why we waste our time. And certainly, I think if there is a message that our culture is reminding us of, is heading steadily towards death, what is the point in believing in the resurrection? So if we admit that it's hard, it seems like the next thing we've got to say is, well, what would it be like to live into that truth? When I was in church, when I was younger, and was in my grandfather's church, we would have these rotating youth pastors, folks that had come in for a couple years, and they'd try, and, and then they'd leave. And there was one in particular who, at the time in Youngstown, was a copier salesman, but really had a passion for working with youth. Passion and ability might be two different things with this person, because the thing I remember most from my time with this youth pastor, is he would remind me over and over again, all of us, that we were dumb dust. Well, don't forget, y'all, you're dumb dust. Don't forget, friends, that you came from the earth, you are dumb dust. Which I will tell you, for the fragile 12-year-old ego, not the best thing to say. For the well-established 36-year-old ego, not the greatest thing to say. I remember hearing that as a youth, and when you trust your youth pastor, you try to shape what your understanding is around what you're being told. So I tried to believe in being dumb dust, that I am nothing heading steadily towards the final decay, blowing in the wind, causing more problems than worth. And maybe y'all didn't hear that directly, but sometimes I wonder how many of you have been told that same story in different ways. Maybe not dumb dust, but you should consider yourself lucky sinner. In the hands of an angry God, you are lucky. 
But as I got older, I began to appreciate that maybe there's something else in this world, that though we may go to dust, life will always spring forth. The bulbs that sit dormant will come back to life. The trees that sit in our yards and in the world will bring forth leaves again. So yeah, we may be dust, but life will come back. And we weren't dumb after all, but we were broken. We were imperfect. We are fallen, but God still redeems broken, imperfect people and broken, imperfect circumstances. So maybe I'm not dumb dust after all. Maybe you're not dumb dust after all. But instead, I'd like to think instead that we are rich soil. Rich, ready to grow soil. I mean, maybe you don't want to be called dirt. I can understand that. But run with the uh, analogy with me or metaphor with me. And I think believing in this radical, life-changing idea of resurrection, that Jesus Christ died and came back from the dead, means that life can spring forth from places that we would have never seemed likely to happen. The impossible corners of life. How many of you have that friend that you were convinced would never have come to faith and then somehow accepts Jesus? Death to life. How many of your stories are, written, are rotated around heading toward death and decay, but somehow life has changed because there is a place to look for resurrection? That from our broken bulbs spring the plants of springtime in resurrection. So maybe this isn't so crazy after all, because we see it everywhere. We just might not think of it as a resurrection. We think of it as the seasons rolling by. But life will spring forth from the dead places in this world. And in Luke, gives a, Luke, Jesus gives us the image of that exact resurrection, but then he complicates it because that's Jesus's M.O. If you lay out the scene, you hear that there is a great multitude of people who were all over the place. We don't know how many, but imagine a pretty sizable crowd. People were just clamoring to be near Jesus. And they just wanted to be healed by being next to him. Gosh, he didn't have to do anything. No one had to do anything. So long as I could touch his clothing, I will be healed. And the way that the story reads, if you look at John, we witness this first scene that Jesus comes down to be with the people. And then he gazes up to the disciples. And so I wonder if these folks who have been completely sold out to this way of life, who are with Jesus and say, yes, I'm going to follow you, somehow couldn't find their way down to be with the people who also needed healing. These are the folks who already bought into the gospel message before they even had a scripture. They just thought Jesus was right. So instead of some declarative statement, some sort of observation to say, well, blessed and woe, I think this reads more like an explanation, perhaps a way in which we can live the resurrection life. We 
are our best vision of resurrection in this world. Every single one of you carry within you the chance to show life springing forth from decay and death. You are the resurrection in this world. But if we hide from it, we only see the decay that's in front of us. Friends, we need not to think about the blessings in this world as rewards of something that we have done well. It is great that life is going good for you, but don't think it's because you did something particularly right. And on the other side of it, we, we, we need not think that our woes are punishment or challenge for something that we have somehow, somehow done poorly. I've had a bunch of really terrible things happen to me this week. God must be testing me. God must not, I must have done something wrong. Maybe I need to pray a little harder. As if somehow God was trying to take a switch to us at every single opportunity. And if you don't believe me on this, I would suggest reading Job front to back. And you'll see that was the conversation that Job and his friends were having. Well, you must have done something wrong, Job. And the resolve at the end of the book is, God is God. Circumstances are circumstances. And worship God. And so maybe the blessing and woes of this world are just part of life and that we are simply living and being part of this world. And maybe they don't carry some sort of indictment on your life. Maybe the bad things that have happened to you are not because you're a bad person. Maybe the good things that happen to you are not because you're a good person. Maybe it is because this is the way the world works. And sometimes good and bad things happen. God is not a bank account. And God is, again, not a switch ready to induce pain. Instead, it could be the recognition that we need to get down from wherever we are and live out the belief of this resurrection. And here's the thing. Many of you who are facing difficulties in your life right now might need to be reminded again that there is a resurrection. When things look really bleak, wouldn't it be nice to remember that perhaps these experiences are just daffodils ready to bloom? And that might sound cheap, but I think when life is really going difficultly, the image of the paper white might be a nice place to center your eye. We don't need to wistfully pray for something to change or give up altogether to say, I'm done with this. We can be living expressions of life after death in the here and now. That though difficult things are happening, there is something better coming. And at times, we will be living in woes. We need the lifting up of others, the blessings of the resurrection. You never know tomorrow if you will be the site of the resurrection that somebody needs. That one hug, that one phone call might be the way that somebody recognizes that Jesus came back from the dead. And if Jesus did it, maybe we will be able to come back from the places in death in our lives too. And sometimes when we're feeling our best, we need to extend ourselves to those who have little. And honestly, we all likely can extend ourselves to those who have even less than all of us because we are still likely in safe, comfortable places. 
roofs over our heads, meals at the table. And so as we've walked through these few weeks, I want to ask, are you still praying for the people who you don't think deserve the resurrection message? Are you still looking for where God's nudge may be to perhaps push you on? If you're not, I invite you to go back and try it again this week. And on top of that, I would like for you to consider what would it be like for you to come down as one of the disciples and start being the resurrection precisely for those you don't want to be near. Maybe you can't stand folks who do X, Y, and Z. Good for them for going to prison. Maybe go to Kairos once. Maybe you have a really hard time justifying anybody who would commit an abortion. Maybe go find somebody. Maybe God will lay on your heart somebody and just pray for them. Just be with them. Just know their story. Bring resurrection to their lives. Which goes beyond, it turns out, the political, social, spiritual dynamics of how we feel about the particular topic. Every single one of us, again, has that place that if we talk about it, it wears on us and it makes us say, this is not who I see, who Jesus loves. Go find that person and bring them life. Because there's where blessings are. And friends, I think it goes beyond after a while, and maybe not at first, a card or a mission trip or some other time where we're able to go down for a little bit and then come back up, probably means a complete lifestyle change. It probably means being willing to go down with the folks who need healing and staying there. So next week, the final week, We'll talk about the practical of it because Jesus gives us some sense of here's how you would do that. But for now, I just invite you. You are resurrection people. You are people who know Jesus Christ as Lord. And who knows, who knows who needs to hear that message today. Thanks be to God.